Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Windy City Historians podcast. To episode nine, The First Scandal. The first of many. We are all set. So Fantastic. Headphones be damned. I've, we've we've okay. got good levels here, and so we're fine. Yeah. Okay. Are you rolling? So we're, we're rolling. So, Chris, here we are on a beautiful... June? June, yeah, second. I can't believe it's June. I was going to... I want to say May still. It's not raining. No, <laughs> and it's sunny, and we... I don't know why we're inside, but we're here because <laughs> of Dr. Ann Durkin-Keating. And do you just go by Dr. Keating now, or is it the Dirk and Keating was on your book? Whenever I publish anything, it's Ann Dirk and Keating. Okay. I'm Ann Keating. Okay. Yeah. And then you're at North Central College in Naperville. Right. As I, a professor there. Yeah, I've been there about 30 years. So Which I teach history out there. I, I did bring with me my copy of the book. Of course. Rising Up from to. Indian Country, fantastic book that came out in, eight, or, you know, I want to say 1812. It's about 1812, Chicago. But it came out, we're not that old, it came out in 2012, correct? Yeah, and it's coming out actually in paper this fall. Oh, paperback, cool. I've got a book about uh, Juliet Kinsey that's coming out at the same time, so they've decided to piggyback the paperback edition of this there. Very Um, good. Do you teach a class on Chicago history? Oh, I do. I do. So it's it's great fun. It's one of my very favorite things to teach, so I'm teaching it at least once a year. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, it is. But it's changed a lot over time. Just doing these podcasts and writing and researching myself, you go back to things and you see them in a different light each time. It's got to be kind of fun to, to require yourself to go back and teach Chicago history and then you'll probably uncover new things. You got it. Oh, yeah. All the time. Yeah. All the time. And at moments, it freezes you to, to write anything. Because <laughs> um, once it's written down, then of course, you know, you do find new things right. and you rethink things all the time. And that, that's okay. And mo- you just have to stop at moments and do a podcast or uh, write something so that it gets down. Well, then this is a perfect segue into my question with authors or historians is, and you're both, of course, what got you into Chicago history and teaching it and having a PhD? And Yeah, well, I, I'm a native Chicagoan, and uh-huh. I did fourth grade Chicago history, so I go back that far. But I was... Uh, did, did it resonate you, with you then? Or Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I can remember when Mayor and Wade came out in 68. I mean, I was 11 years old, and I desperately wanted this book. Wow. But I kept taking it out from the library. So um, it's cheaper as a kid. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was <laughs> it was it was a big investment. It was not clear that that was where my passions really were. What was the name of the book again? Oh, it's a Chicago Growth of a Metropolis. It's by Richard Wade and Harold Mayer. So it's oh my gosh, sixty eight. That makes it over fifty years old. Yeah, um, right. But it's a picture book and it's maps and pictures. So Harold Mayer was a geographer and and wow. Richard Wade was a historian. But I did not study history in college. I was an anthro major. I thought I was going to do archaeology. Oh, yeah. And got to grad school in urban studies at the University of Chicago. And I took an urban history class with Kathy Consum. And I'll oh. be honest, that was it. So I just knew this is home. I really loved and urban history. You were smitten. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, it really was. <laughs> and then I look back and it's like, oh, you've always liked this. But it never really occurred to me that you could do this. Yeah. Then I had to back up. It was not a decision that I was looking forward to what I was going to be doing. It was just right then and there I really wanted to study this. But I love teaching history. It was a gift. Yeah. I fell into it in that way. Well, I mean, it's unusual. Not everybody's fortunate enough to find a job, let no. alone a career that they really enjoy right. doing day in and day out. There's always drudgery to any job or career. Oh, yeah. yeah but yeah. for we're, the most part, to enjoy it is, is fantastic. We're on final papers and exams. Oh. So I, you, you've hit me at a moment where yeah. I can I can tell you about the downside. Speaking <laughs> of drudgery, right? Yeah. Well, it's not drudgery. It's just a lot of time. Oh, yeah. And drudgery, yeah. well, there's, no, you're right. Stress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got it. You got it. So rising up from Indian country... I think in the introduction, you kind of explain how 
you'd never intended to jump into this story on John Kinsey and focus on him so much. And yet that seemed to be the thread that carried you through that early Chicago history. Right. Where did you begin with Chicago history? I mean, where do you think Chicago history begins? In graduate school, my dissertation started in 1830. And my argument was Chicago is a real estate deal. Okay. So, and I have a book that starts in 1830 <laughs> with Chicago's a real estate deal. Pierre Lebeau, who I taught with for many years out at North Central College, he heard me give the talk on this and he's like, really interesting stuff, but hey, there was history before 1830 here. And, and wait, you chose 1830 because? It's the James Thompson Platt of, oh. of Chicago. So it's the first time that Chicago has made real estate. Okay. And it's a, a magnificent plat, and it's the now the downtown area. So it's just a, a block across the river, and then it's our downtown district yes. in the South Loop. We live with it today. The names are there. The streets are laid Kinsey out. Kinsey Edition. That's exactly right. And all of those pieces then come in. Block so one and block two. It. And it's a reasonable place to start. Sure. And that's actually what really got me interested. I worked on the Encyclopedia of Chicago we started 91, 92, so it was a long haul yeah. oh, over most of the 90s and into the 2000s. Yeah, because did that come out in like 2002 or four, something four, like that? Yeah. Okay. In the course of that project, I took on a lot of the responsibility for early parts of the story. Yeah. But the other thing is I got to work with a couple of people that were really something else. One of them was Helen Hornbeck Tanner, mm-hmm. whose maps and work on the Great Lakes Atlas of American Indians is really an unbelievable source. And she does a map for 1830 oh, yes. <laughs> in the encyclopedia, which you can see in the encyclopedia. And I think I've got it in Rising Up too. that knocked my socks off because I've got that plat in my head, that Thompson plat, that that's yeah. where the story starts. And again, who's here first? And then you look at this map and she's mapped all of the Indian villages in the region in 1830. Exhaustive. I mean, this was decades of her own sure. work on this. It wasn't the start. It was a transition, right? Yeah. Because that map really shows that there were a lot of people before that. And so that kind of sparked my interest mm-hmm. in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now where would you call Chicago's beginning? Oh, God. I'd hesitate. I don't think we know a heck of a lot about the 18th century story. Yeah. And we don't know much before that. Your podcast we're, is already we're, getting we're trying, there, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I really think that's a critical piece of this. And we, we have not yeah. had it. Well, I have a theory about that. A lot of it, it was lost in translation from the French oh, to the English yeah. because they were enemies. Why would you pass along? This is intelligence, right? I mean, if you're French, you realize the English got it wrong. Why would you correct them? The layout of the land and whatnot. Right. So I, I think because we're dealing with a different language and different culture, I think some of that might have been. Skewed. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I think the materials land in archives American historians don't usually go to. And most people that do Chicago history think of themselves as American historians and not as a broader base of historians. A lot of us don't have French. so I know, that's what I struggle with. I will only get so far in this because I have to work with translated materials. And then I also think that it's against the national narrative. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, if you put the French in this story, you're putting Native Americans in this story. You're giving them a voice in something that we would really just prefer to start in 1830 when it's real estate and we yeah. can ignore the fact that there were people well, here. it was embedded here first, right. right? We think that we are the best innovators and so therefore we think history is the same. Right. Right. No, I, I really, that's why I think it's so important to do. Yeah. Because I think we need to keep reminding ourselves that there are lots of ways, there are lots of places to start. There are yeah. lots of things that we know nothing about. And that early settlement, I think, (laughs) is kind of where we want to go with you because that seems to be right into your sweet spot of permanent settlement of Chicago and Fort Dearborn leading up to Mm -hmm. the War of 1812. Can you set the scene? What was this area like? You've really covered it in previous podcasts. We're on a line between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River means that we're going to be this ongoing portage Mm -hmm. region the idea that there's a topography here that we want to keep in mind yeah. in an environment. Well, we're so flattered that you've already listened to a couple of the podcasts. Yeah, so. they're wonderful. So the, <laughs> well, the idea you. that what you've got is a line between the eastern woodlands and the prairies. Yeah. Both of those things have shaped our history in this region for thousands and thousands of years. In the most recent 
centuries, it meant that Indian groups were pushed in and out of this region by intertribal warfare and also European colonial interests, Native American land, but then claimed by the French, by the Mm -hmm. British. And that's an 18th century story, right? Is that back and forth that takes place by the time of the American Revolution. It's a place where there are French traders who have come into this region. Mm -hmm. There are Native American groups that have moved into this region. So the Potawatomi would be one of those groups that wasn't here hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but instead it's 250 or 300 years that they have made that trek from the Eastern woodlands And we've got the French traders and then overlaid on them are British traders. And then you've got Americans who are making these new incursions to come into this. Yeah. I think we should really be thinking about as an Indian country. Yes. Because it's your title, too. Yeah. Yeah. Indian country. I mean, it's not my phrase, but it's a phrase that I really want us to be thinking about when we think about Chicago in this era. The U.S. does not control this territory. No. And that political battle of maps, they show it as a blank slate when... We know that there was all these Native American cultures there. Whoever came into this area that was not Native American was far outnumbered at that time. Right, right. And the people who came in knew that. They were operating in a place controlled by Native peoples. Yes. And the French were very good at adapting the culture and intermarrying. Not just the French. British traders who follow from 1763 through technically 1783, but really 1794, Mm -hmm. when this region is really claimed by the British after the end of the French and Indian War. So someone like William Burnett, who's an important figure in Chicago's story, is a British trader whose trading outpost at St. Joseph is going to wind up being American. And he marries a Potawatomi woman, Kakima. And we know a lot because Burnett's left us really good records. Kakima is the farmer. She raises food, she raises surplus corn, Mm -hmm. and he is able to negotiate through her family network from there to do trading amongst the Potawatomi and their allies. Yes. In fact, the comment that he makes in a letter that he had left her for a season to mine the store of the trading post, and and she did exceptionally well. Right. Kakima is instrumental to this whole operation. It's really a partnership. You got it. Unlike William Burnett, we know far less about Pointu Sabo. He's doing adventures for Burnett, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. And then he's also got these connections in Detroit that he's made. So well, because he, he was Burnett. he was captured by the British during the Revolutionary War, right? and Patrick St. Clair, who's right. in charge, quickly enlists him to run the Pinery, right. which is this sawmill right. outside of Detroit, probably provided most of the lumber to build the original Detroit. Going from being accused of a spy for the Americans to then running this really significant business sounds like pretty profitably. He must have been a very charismatic and capable individual. I have to agree. I think there's an interesting discussion here and it relates to John Kinsey. My hunch is, and again, I have nothing on Point Du Sable. Mm -hmm. I have more on Kinsey to talk about these men or women as spies I'm less comfortable with that. I understand how they get accused of being spies. Sure. My sense is they were not people who looked at this world in terms of national identity and allegiance. And they had much more allegiance to families, the trade networks that they had established in Indian country. Right. Yeah. I mean, we'd like to know a lot more about him, right? He's such a curious character. Can I just read? Yeah. I spent a lot of time thinking about what we can say about Jean-Baptiste Pointu-Sable. This is where I am. Pointu-Sable was a French-speaking, mixed-race, practicing Catholic who married an Indian woman and traded around Lake Michigan for nearly 30 years. Pointu-Sable comes here to Chicago, Mm -hmm. and he marries Catherine, probably Potawatomi. It's possible that she's not. So it's possible that she's also from Illinois. I just have never seen the documentation. Oh, right. Chances are he's, she's Potawatomi. So that is our first permanent settler in Chicago. Right. Jean Baptiste Pointe de Sable. Can I just the, correct, the, as a French speaker, Jean Baptiste Pointe de Sable? <laughs> Again, I don't have the French. This no, is my just, handicap just, in this early Chicago history. It's Notre Dame, not Notre Dame. <laughs> okay, well, you'll, you'll Thanks, have to, Chris. You'll have to bear with my mispronunciation. But we're American, so it doesn't matter. I, I, will, I will butcher no, this coming right. and going. Right. But, um, Jean-Baptiste Pointe de Sable, he's going to establish this trading outpost and then has this connection with Burnett. I think he arrived in Chicago 
about 1784 or five? Yeah, he's coming after the American Revolution. Okay. Certainly by the late 1780s, he's here. Now what's going on is the Potawatomi are moving west. Burnett is pushing his people and the, the connections that he's got towards the west, down to Peoria. So it makes a great deal of sense to set up shop at Chicago, where there isn't an Indian village. These trading outposts, they're best suited close to, but not right on top of an Indian village so that they have some autonomy. And that's what Pointe du Sable does, builds this French style house. He's married, he's raising a family. I love the description of him as a handsome black man. Right. Is just such a, a wonderful vision. And I love, I think the statue of him the bust of him that's been done down at Pioneer Court is magnificent, but it's an imagining of what he looked like because we don't know. For listeners interested in learning more about Jean-Baptiste Pointe-de-Sable, we have a detailed profile of him in Windy City Historians podcast, episode eight, Who Was First? And he's got these trade networks, but he's out of the line of fire from the fighting between British and the Americans or the Spanish. Chicago is not a center. He's not the only one there. After mm-hmm. he comes, his next door neighbors are the Ulmets. They come mm-hmm. and settle. O-I-U, yeah, yeah, M-E-T-T-E yeah. or some version of that. Right, right. And I mean, yeah, we'll, met, we'll met today, right? The it's suburb. Named after. And, the, and that's because they will have gotten their land grants would have been up in that area. Again, Antoine Wilmette and his wife, Archange, who's coming from the Calumet, which is one of the Potawatomi villages to the south, they come up and they're working alongside of and for Point du Sable, and then people are in and out. So you start to have this small trading outpost really as this ancillary post from St. Joseph. And in later accounts, I understand Wilmette was often providing horses or guidance to get people through the Chicago Portage. right and service right. to the trading. Right. Uh, he is not setting up a trading operation on right. his own. John Kinsey has come out of Detroit, trained as a silversmith. He and his partner, John, uh, John Clark. Clark, gone south from Detroit, and he's doing Indian trading that's mostly with the Shawnee, have both made common law marriages with women who were taken captive you know, 1791 and 1794, fighting in Ohio. Yeah. Kinsey and Clark get burned out. Is it twice? Twice, it, yeah. First He's, in what becomes Fort Wayne, I think. Right. And then, yeah, or is Kikunga it? and Auglaise. And, yeah. and Auglaise was just a little further right. up the Wabash River, if right. I recall. Right, not far from Fort Wayne. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So that's the two. And after this, the sisters are far more interested in being American. Layered on that, of course, is the 1795 Greenville Treaty. It identifies Chicago. A six-mile square right. area at the mouth of the Chicago River where a French fort once stood. Right. right? So the fort is, we'll just leave that to the side. Right. That's but, another but they, topic. Right. Mm-hmm. And once you've got the Greenville Treaty in place, it identifies Chicago along with Fort Wayne and Vincennes and near what's going to become Tippy Canoe yeah. as places that the U.S. government has identified that they want. I look at it as the U.S. gets reservation lands in Indian country. You know, that those are places that from now on, they're going to be identified as U.S. places. And they require free passage along the waterways. That's exactly right. Right. So after the Treaty of Greenville, Kinsey and Clark, and they've been burned out twice. Yes. His first wife has left him. And I think his partner's wife also leaves they both Back leave to Virginia, at the same time. around right. Detroit in, in 1796. The sister's birth father shows up. And they take the children. And they take the children. I'm, you can see where they'd be just disgusted with this guy, John. You know, come on, we'll make it work. And a second time he blows it and you just be like, that's it, I'm done. Right, right. As right. A, well, as a and especially if someone comes up um, yeah. and comes back and, and offers you the opportunity to go to, east. And um, to civilization. Whatever terms that leave-taking has is not so final that Margaret shows up. Margaret Hall shows up in Chicago after John Kinsey has died in 1828. And she's she's related how to, again? That's his first wife. And the Halls and the Clybournes show up by the Mm -hmm. late 1820s. And by the way, for those listening, there's a lot of branches to this family tree well, and, and then the multiple marriages. Yeah. If you feel like you need a 
chart as we discuss this to track the Kinsey family. We understand we will have uh, this family tree on our website. Professor Keating. She explains how the Halls and the Clybournes come back. The Halls, she's the references to Margaret Kinsey Hall, who's gotten remarried and then comes back to Chicago. And the Clybournes, she's referring to Elizabeth, who had married John Clark, John Kinsey's previous partner from the 1790s. And she comes back remarried to a Jonas Clybourne, and then they uh, are in Chicago. And in fact, Archibald Clybourne is a butcher. His father's a tanner, Jonas Clybourne. And they are probably the impetus for what will later become the whole Union meat, stockyards. Yeah, and the meatpacking industry in yeah. Chicago. So Kinsey will remarry to Eleanor McClip, who's a widow of a British officer. Again, the connections in with the Forsythes are important here up and, in Sandwich. And she, too, had spent some of her youth as a captive. She was a Seneca captive. Okay. So she... Understood the Native American cultures to exactly some degree. Right. It's a very interesting thing that Kinsey will marry someone who is an adopted Seneca yeah. Woman. I mean, Kinsey yes. seems, if nothing more, strategic in his decisions given the environment around him. Right. Eleanor is a fascinating woman because they hold on to family connections in mm-hmm. Detroit and New York. They seem to be very similar in that way. They seem to be people that take advantage of those connections. In that family, in Kinsey's family, mm-hmm. Foresight family, there are decisions being made about whether or not you're going to be British or American. We do know is John Kinsey chose not to identify as a British subject, even though he was married in Sandwich. That's where the British went across the river. So that was the British outpost. Chapter 1795, two of the Forsyth brothers, John Kinsey's stepbrothers, do become British subjects. If you don't identify that you want to remain a British subject, you by default become American. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, how do we play all sides of this? I think that's interesting in and of itself. I have never seen any indication of a strong national allegiance. And is that the Jay Treaty that This that comes out of that? the Jay Treaty, yeah. and it really affects Michigan. Mm-hmm. So it really affects mm-hmm. the story of Michigan, less so here in Illinois, because there's far fewer people. And this treaty was basically so that the Americans could actually gain control of a lot of the Great Lakes forts that right. the British had continued to occupy even post so it's not, War of Rebellion, as the British would call it, or Right. So, so Detroit had stayed in British hands until after 1794, after the Jay's Treaty. Point de Sable seems to be fairly agrarian, fairly settled. Right. Other traders often just go where the business is, and right. they are happy to do adventures and take long trips. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. Some of these men are natural adventurers like Kinsey, and which it, which think, seems to speak to me. I always kind of bring it back to the human nature and what different personalities and, and those were all mixed in. Right, and how comfortable people are, want to be at home or not, right? Yeah. yeah, no, you're exactly right. That's a nice point. And I think that changes to some degree over time. But yeah, Kinsey likes to move around. He's often traveling. Right, right, keeping those networks together. And I think he's not tied to a place as much as a network. And I think that would hold for Point du Sable. It holds men in this trading system. And in part, it holds very much if they're married to Potawatomi women in this region because the Potawatomi are not staying in one place. So that's mm. the other thing about these Indian villages is that over the course of the seasons, they're moving. It's a mobile world. More fluid. More fluid. That's exactly right. So you're going to run into groups of people depending on the time of the year. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a really very different vision than the one that we carry around with. If you're Point du Sable and you've been through the American Revolution, you've been accused of being a spy. He knows the Americans, they're coming, and he knows they're coming. Wouldn't a trader like uh, Point du Sable think about the timing, leaving Chicago a decade or so before the Battle of Fort Dearborn? That's not good for business. Maybe he sensed that things were going to go sideways. Right. I think there's no question that the American arrival was going to transform it, right? I mean, this was going to be a sure. very, troublesome is a good way to describe yeah. it. Troublesome is a good word. And Indiana. Yeah. And that you see William Henry Harrison. I mean, it point to Sable. He's as smart as he may well have been. He would see that as a wise decision to just get out of the way. As a French speaking person, you know, maybe he felt like he would not fit in with these Americans either. I mean, at least he had a relationship with the British. Right. 
but either way, he was maybe, it was time to go. And you're an older man who's not older, but he's getting older. I'm going to be sensitive to that age. You, I think I'm, I'm sure. there. He'd had enough. And that he could find people were willing to buy him out. Well, and he understood the French and he understood the Indians and probably understood British as well. But these Americans, like, why bother with these right. guys, right? Right. I, I do think that's another whole... Plus, it's been five years because of this Indian Treaty, where supposedly the U.S. owns all the land that he's on. Right. Point to Savo sells this estate. Yeah, you can't sell the land. You can sell all of his improvements. Right. So he's selling... So all the buildings. His business, but all of these buildings get right. sold. And we don't really know why he leaves Chicago in 1800. Right. One of the things we do know is that his wife and his daughter have died. And do we know how they died? Um, I don't know. The sense that you get is that it's something that came through as some kind of a contagion. We do know that they're gone. And we're back to that idea that this operation is not Jean-Baptiste Point du Sable's operation on his own. It'd be very difficult to run a successful trading operation without his wife. Yeah. I mean, he's got a son-in-law, but to lose his daughter, too, would be a really tough. He's lost an awful lot of the expertise that was operating there, particularly when it comes to farming. They're the farmers. They're raising the crops. They're taking care of whatever livestock you've got there, and that's yeah. all a piece of that. And eventually, you're going to have to go to Mackinac or some, right. or to St. Joseph, at least, to Burnett, who's going to get most of his supplies from Mackinac right. to get supplies. Right. And so who's going to mine the store while that's you're exactly gone, right. right? That's exactly right. So we're back there. From the inventory that was done when yeah. Point de Sable sells his place, it's, it, it must have been wildly successful. Yeah. I mean, there's glass in the windows. There's things on the wall, a substantial I mean, paintings, house. Yeah, exactly right. Would be unheard of in Indian country that, right. at that time. So, I mean, this is the home of someone who is a part of a Euro-American culture, and, as well as being a part of this Indian country. So the house represents something of an outpost, I think, in a lot of and, ways. And has the wherewithal to either trade or purchase luxury goods right. like artwork. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's an interesting... Again, we know tantalizingly, we just don't know enough yes, right. about, about him. And Jean Laline becomes right. the holder of that, right. which we think the financing came from William Burnett. Is that correct? Yeah, that's how I read what we've got in the archival records. But we this don't have a, any like smoking gun document I, that tells us this. Well, no. We don't have, there is nothing that says definitively that that's the case. What we have is the sense that Jean Lalime is acting for William Burnett. Right. He and John Kinsey had both worked for Burnett but, right, as traders. Right. So Point de Sable had been working for him. For part of this, it's also clearing the debts between Burnett and Point de Sable. Mm, probably, so, yeah, right. So to some degree, Burnett may not have wanted mm -hmm. these improvements, but he took them as a part of the settling out process. Because that's the yeah. thing about these traders is that they are always in debt. So if they hit a moment, well, they're not always, but they are frequently in debt. Well, there's and all this credit. Right, exactly right. They're putting credit out years in advance. Mm -hmm. that, and so if, if you stop the circle, <laughs> yeah, then they get caught. And they get caught, and Kinsey's going to be caught multiple times over the course of his career. But at this moment, it's... Point to Sable that wants to stop. Yeah. And it means how do we settle all of this? I think Burnett needed to be on board with this for this to have taken place. Sure. So he, Burnett wanted to give Point to Sable this opportunity. How Jean Laleem fits in. Jean Laleem, Kinsey, and Point to Sable are all doing work for and with Burnett. Mm -hmm. I've always pictured Kinsey as that risk taker, true trader. Yeah, because he's willing to gamble his whole trading post. He's done it twice before, and he's going to do it again in Chicago. And Laleem ingratiates himself with people and mm -hmm. is often working for other people. Mm -hmm. Seems to have a Joe Levy, if, that's, if I can even try the French on that. Spirit of fun and adventure and good fellowship. Yeah. Then he ingratiates himself with probably Burnett. And then later... Charles Joet, yes, who's the Indian agent in Chicago. And then Laleem gets put out of a job when Kinsey takes over that farm and estate of Point de Sables. He becomes the interpreter for the fort and then later for Matthew Irwin, who's the U.S. factor. 
And so I just see them as different individuals of Kinsey being the risk taker and more edgy and Laleem maybe a little more conservative, but still willing to take on some adventure, but always wanting people with him uh, on those adventures. He's not the leader that Kinsey would be. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I really do. Um, and, and in 1800, which, I which really Which makes him like, an ideal placeholder right, for, for Pointe de Sable's estate, right? Right, right. How Kinsey then takes this over is not entirely clear. So we don't know enough of that. There were those documents. He had been granted land by the Ottawa Indians up on the Maumee River, right. what they then called the Wabash right. in Ohio. And he's granted some land, mm-hmm. partners with Thomas Forsyth in that. And I know that then he later sells that, is it about 1800 or so? Somewhere in there where I've just speculated that that's where he gets the cash to take on Point de Sable's estate. Wow. Some of that land might still even be there in 1812. There's like, Not, I mean, 1816, because it's after the war that they're also selling parcels of land outside of Detroit. Yeah, there's a couple, three documents of sale that I ran into, and I, I don't have them off the top of my head. Right. I always speculated that that land that was given by the Ottawa Indians is a way Forsyth, that it gets started. That he has yeah. then a, a nest egg again. Yeah, because he's going to need something. So we've got now Gene Laleem is about to relinquish his control over that estate for Burnett, as we assume. And then Kinsey takes it over. Is it about 1803? And then his family comes in 1804? Yeah, they're coming out of Detroit. Because I saw a letter where Charles Jouette mm-hmm. is in Chicago at that time as Indian agent in the winter of 1803. And he and Laleem are wintering in the Kinsey household. He refers to the Kinsey house. So that transaction must have already happened. Yeah, I mean, it, and it's clear... Th- from that kind of correspondence is that Leem really is a placeholder. Yeah. That it's not seen as a Leem's house, even though Kinsey is there. Right. And I'd have to go back and look at that letter. Yeah. I, in fact, maybe I'll send that to you if I yeah, get a chance. You might find that interesting. Right. Eighteen oh three, we have the founding of Fort Dearborn. So there's two, really two surveys of this yeah, done, okay. right? So, I mean, William Wells comes out. So William Wells, I mean, again, somebody who's been a captive and back again in Indian country and out of Indian country. Yeah, William Wells is from Kentucky originally. Captured as a young boy. He lives with the Miami. He's going to wind up back and forth with his family who is from Kentucky. Brother Samuel Wells is a, a significant figure in early Kentucky history. William Wells becomes the Indian agent at Fort Wayne, Mm -hmm. probably the most knowledgeable Indian agent in the West of Indian country at this point. He's asked to go out, survey the land, and basically scout whether or not they're going to be able to buy food in the area for Mm. this fort. Is it 1803, the mid to late summer when... So the garrison takes a hike. Some of the troops are coming overland. With right, I was going to say it's overland. From Detroit, a chunk of this. Whistler comes out as well. Whistler's family, and he's just got this enormous contingent of his family. I Does mean, he have something like eight children or something children like that? Eight children, and he's got adult children. So he's got children, grandchildren, all come into Chicago from Fort Wayne. One of them is one of his officers, but they come <laughs> and do all kinds of work to build Fort Dearborn. Right. It really is kind of a family enterprise that Whistler's going to create at Chicago. Our listeners might be interested that Whistler's grandson oh, yeah. was the painter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is, it's a fascinating thing, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Whistler's that, mother. Right. There were two Whistler mothers at uh, Fort Dearborn, neither of which is the, in the portrait, in the portrait of, Whistler's, of mother. Whistler's mother. Thank gotcha. you. <laughs> and I wonder if it was ever in the Art Institute, because that would be another... Chicago oh, Whistler's mother was at the Art Institute in the last two years. Oh. It was on display. Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, it was here and there was no connection made. Nobody oh, figured was, that out. It was too bad. Yeah, oh, it yeah. was. But it was an amazing portrait. You could have spoken. It. I know. I could have. Yeah, that would have been but, great. yeah. Whistler, he has no supply chain. There's no one sending out from well, the East Coast. And I'm imagining this as you describe this, this sort of, I know he was kind of heavy, a little bit of a portly guy. I mean, he's an older guy. He's 
He's out of the Revolutionary War. He's and been a career that, military yeah, man. I mean, he's, he's probably in his, what, 50s or 60s? He's in his 50s, yeah. And he's not very agile. No. Yet, he must have a very sharp mind and a bit of a uh, just kind of random, a little bit crazy in that having here's this, he's going to take his whole family and go into the middle of Indian country where he's at least a week from any kind of other civilized support. Right. And build a fort and run a garrison and make sure that they can supply that tension between do we gather food, do we build the fort, you know, how, how do you organize all that? And he pulls it all off. Right. I mean, it is a remarkable achievement. And, and later it's called one of the best so, forts right. for defense right. of any outpost in the West. Right. I mean, it's modeled very, very closely on Fort Wayne. So it's not like he's reinventing the wheel, but he gets all the pieces that have to be there. And he's got enough people and it is a family operation. Yeah. And that's what's going to get him in trouble. Right. In the end here. The fact that he's here, it's going to create a fairly stable world around Fort Dearborn for its first seven, eight years. So you've got Whistler's family in the fort, and then you've got the Kinseys to the north. And Kinsey also will have connections to the fort. Well, his daughter, or I'm sorry, it's Eleanor's daughter from a previous marriage, Margaret, right. marries one of the lieutenants at the fort, right. Lieutenant Hamilton who later is shipped off to Fort Madison. Right. Right? Over on the Mississippi. Right. They are an island. They're yeah. trying to figure out how to get food and supplies, ammunition, and everything they need. What's the name of the person that does the supply for the army? The and adjutant general of the army does all the supply, Right, I think. all that supply. I mean, they... And the logistics, they, yeah. Supply and logistics. Talking about the expansion uh, west, I imagine like an elastic... Yeah. A rubber band, it gets to the farthest end and it just starts to break down. Right. It's just, it's too far in this age of horses. It's not a very sophisticated system right. that breaks down as it moves west. I think that's a big piece of this story that we need to keep in mind, that Chicago's really kind of beyond yeah. that line yeah. all the way through this story. Another part of this is the idea that the minute Fort Dearborn gets founded, the Louisiana Purchase kicks in, and everybody's attention shifts from Chicago yeah. to doing Lewis and Clark to yeah, right. integrating New Orleans and all of sure. these pieces, which are really important to the U.S. Yeah. Fort Dearborn, it does not rise high enough. And they're going to build roads. I mean, it's going to get better over yeah, the course right. of, of the time that Fort Dearborn is there. They're going to build a road. They will start getting postal more, roads, more regular mostly. postal yep. roads. That's exactly right. So that they get that kind of connection. But it wasn't there at the and, outset. And they do generally get a monthly dispatch right. or express, as they call it, from Fort from Wayne. From Fort Wayne. So their um, lifeline is Fort Wayne. You know, that's not supplies. You know, that's just paper. Right, uh, more right. information. So, so, and how long does it take, as will become a critical later on, how long does it take for a letter to go to D.C. and back? Yeah, so it can take six weeks. It can take four weeks. It depends Probably on how long. The weather. Couple, in the winter, on, much longer. It can right. be two months. That's exactly easily. right. A big part of this is really whoever is going that way. Yeah. We know Whistler is out there looking for cat. He's looking for meat. Because he might get what? One, maybe at best three ships right. in a season, which would have been sometime between, you know, May and right, right, coming uh, and, down from October, no, probably. That's exactly right. This is not a regular occurrence, and so he's going to raise most of his stuff. The other thing is keeping soldiers, right? So yeah. there's this yeah. constant battle of getting people to resign and, and recruiting new soldiers. One of the things that does happen is some of these soldiers, as they retire or don't sign reenlistments they get permission to stay. So someone like James Lee, mm -hmm. who is with Whistler's forces, will leave the army and he'll stay. And why does he stay? Because- He, he was a sergeant at one point. He's a sergeant and he was really helpful in getting people to re-enlist and recruiting people. So he's clearly someone who works closely with Whistler. And, and as a farm and is raising cattle in what they call hardscrabble near the forks of the South Branch of the Chicago River in the Chicago neighborhood of Bridgeport. He's allowed to stay in Chicago, even though Americans are not supposed to be here. Sure. Well, it's still the U.S. reservation. It's the You're reservation. You're living on U.S. And, land. And the U.S. Army does not want to be protecting settlers. Right. This is not what they, they do not have the it's manpower. It's added complication. That, it's exactly right. right. And so they don't want them out there. So 
they give permission to these civilians, mm -hmm. but then you, they add in another whole layer of complication to this story because then you've got civilians who are not under army rural, and then who's in fact in charge of these mm -hmm. folks? Most of them are former army, so they're going to work fairly closely with Whistler. Kinsey then becomes a really important figure for Whistler because Kinsey has those connections to get the supplies that, that In Detroit and Mackinac. Kinsey's also got the language skills, the connections into Native Americans in the region, the Potawatomi and their allies. So two people at the fort, Jean Laleem also has them. Yes. And so Laleem is going to be paid by the U.S. government. He is the Fort Dearborn interpreter right from the get-go. Wells identifies him as someone who you really want to get on board. This would yeah. be a good guy to have as a part of your operation. So Laleem works for Whistler, for Jewett, for, but mostly for Jewett and then Irwin. Kinsey goes into business with his stepbrother, Thomas Forsythe, who operates out of Peoria. That's where more of the Potawatomi are. They're casting a wider network that's going south and west, really following what Burnett had in mind mm -hmm. and doing that kind of trading connection. I have been learning about this world of the 18th century. You have been using some terms that I'm not that familiar with, one of them being a factor. And then the other word that kind of comes up is... Suttlering. And now I know it's like... A supplier. You know, the supplier, or so John the, Carpenter, John Suttler. Yeah. Each fort would have usually a, a Suttler. Suttler. Spell that for me. S-U-T-L-E-R. That was a position in the late 1700s, early 1800s, to sell goods to the soldiery. Or as we would say in our, in our day, the, the soldiers. Right. But that's not how they talked in the 18th right. century. Right. They did say soldiery. Yes. Plural. Which would mean both the soldiers and the officers. There was usually a local person that supplied additional goods to the fort. Um, it might be necessities. It might also be things like uh, chewing tobacco or whiskey or something out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And if they had both a sutler and a factor at one fort, they would end up being in competition with one another. My understanding is that the factor is kind of like the company store. Fort. Right. And the sutler would be a contractor. Gotcha. Right. And then the government store would be the U.S. factory. Right. And they could trade with anybody. So I want to say it was 1805 or about that time. Thomas Jefferson expanded the factory system originally created by President George Washington under the Indian Department, which was a subset of the War Department. The factors could be appointed as agents or sub-agents. Okay. There was a general, General Mason at the time, who was in charge of the Indian Department, and he was located in Georgetown. Oh, okay. They had a role to maintain Indian relations, previous commitments from Indian treaties, and to trade with the Native Americans and help capture some of the fur trade that the U.S. was missing out of on the West because of British traders that had been there for decades so basically, Jefferson had outsourced to a private co contractor certain duties that the federal government was interested in. It, it wasn't outsourced because he created this within the Indian Department. It, these, it was a federal job. Yeah, these factors okay. were, were paid by the federal government through the Indian yeah. Department. Well, that's an important point. So the factor, one of his big jobs was at least once a year to distribute those annuities to the Native tribes in his area. In this case, Matthew Irwin was responsible for the Potawatomis in the greater Chicago area. So this is a position of great import to the Indians. Yes. It, well, it made it more convenient because otherwise the, the Potawatomi of the area around northern Illinois would have had to go all the way to Fort Wayne then to collect their annuities. In a modern era, I could see the postmaster doing this. Sure. So in this case, you have like a shopkeeper, more or less, Yep. But he also has this big deal duty of paying the annuities. That's not something that would spring to mind as one of his tasks. Right. Well, because there, there was not even a post office. Right. There's no they, real town. This is a, a reservation, a military a, reservation. A U.S. reservation in Indian country. Six right? square miles. Yes. This is Chicago. Yes. 
You can't buy the land. You could build a house on it or improve upon it, but you can't own it. Correct. And that was, again, going back to another Indian treaty, the Greenville Treaty of 1795 that ended the Northwest Indian Wars. But as you told me, there's one thing that the factor was not allowed to do, and that was to sell alcohol to the Indians. That's right. They were not... Prohibited. They they were not allowed to sell alcohol to the Indians. What about the sutler? The sutler was not under such restrictions. (laughs) Okay, now. They often would be told not to sell liquor to the Indians, but in many cases they did. It really depended on the scruples of the sutler Mm -hmm. as to how much he would use alcohol to improve his trade, whether he'd go for the short-term gain of getting Indians drunk because they couldn't tolerate the alcohol, and then trade for a bunch of their goods or, or put them in debt that then they had to bring more furs in. Or John Kinsey actually was known to be a friend of the Indians and would not sell too much liquor to them so that he wasn't taking advantage of the Indians and was always known as a friend to the Indians is kind of how he's characterized. Well, that's interesting because I know on the frontier at this time and even later to the American West that alcohol was a commodity that it was money. Right, right. Because you couldn't necessarily save grain for, mm-hmm. you could only save it for so long. Yeah. So it was, it was much better to distill it, turn it into alcohol, and then that would keep for years, decades, and you could then cash in on a surplus supply of corn or wheat or rye or, or whatever mm-hmm. grains that you had. It was kind of a way to bank money. Right. And I remember reading about Mormon pioneers heading up the Missouri River, heading out west paying for their supplies and whatnot with whiskey. Mm. And this is a religious group that was not allowed to drink alcohol. And Matthew Irwin was the factor at Fort Dearborn. In Chicago. In Chicago. He wasn't actually in the fort. And that building, that factory building or trading house, as they called it, and it was overlooked by one of the guard houses that had a cannon above. So it it was basically under the protection of the fort. So it's on the south side of the Chicago River near the fort. Yep, just slightly west of it along the river. Okay, so it would be along uh, Wacker Drive. Yeah, yeah, so it's probably... Michigan and Wacker? It would be just west of Michigan, so it might be about where the Wabash Bridge is now. So it was close enough that it had the protection of the fort. Right. But it was far enough away that there was some separation. Well, I think the idea was when the Indians came for their annuities... Mm-hmm. It would usually be a large gathering, and it would last for multiple days. And so the Indians would need space to camp and to hang out. And so from a security standpoint, if you had your factory in the fort, then you have to let the Indians all into the fort. Yeah. It would leave you vulnerable. Sure. So you're better to put the factory outside the fort, less than a gunshot away, of course, and you can protect it and leaves open the country around it, then the Indians can hang out there because they usually come and would travel and they'd be there for a couple days and there would be ceremonies and things like that going on. These were important functions out on the frontier. Sure. And being a sutler at a fort would have been the best business in Chicago at that time. In 1809, Colonel Jacob Kingsbury comes into Detroit to oversee the whole Great Lakes District, and those forts all report to him. Right. And about that same time, Matthew Irwin arrives in Chicago. Yeah. You got it. Well, trying to. I'm, try, no, I'm trying do. to piece it all together. Yeah, Matthew Irwin's an interesting character, right? So yes. somebody who's from outside of Indian country will come in with very little experience. He's from Philadelphia. Right. I always think of him as a bit of a dandy. Oh, yeah. You know, fairly and, young. But yeah, so Irwin, the factor, Charles Dewitt. The, the who's Indian agent. Indian agent. They make a lot of money. These are political appointments yeah. that, that they get because they're friends of politicians on the East Coast, and they get these political appointments so, in Indian country. The position of the factor mm-hmm. and the Indian agent make twice as much money as the captain posted to the army. $800 the person, a year? Yeah, by far the most money. In um, Chicago? In, yes, in mm-hmm. Chicago. Mm-hmm. And 
I think Matthew Irwin, who comes in here in some ways as the factor who complains about this tight relationship between Kinsey and Whistler Mm -hmm. and the fact that Whistler's family was involved in selling to the fort, to the U.S. Army. With surgeon's mate, John Cooper. Right. Irwin comes in and Irwin sees this very differently. Irwin's a black and white guy. I understand where Irwin was coming from, but Irwin has... An Eastern vision, he sees there's wrong going on here. Well, he comes from a large city of Philadelphia where there's constables and justices, and he's trying to enforce East Coast justice on the frontier. Right. right? I think that's a good way to think about it. It really is. And he was angry that Whistler was making money. He was angry with the connections with the Kinseys. And he didn't know much about this world, but he had Laleem. Yes. And so Laleem is also going to be caught up in this. Gene Laleem, who was referred to occasionally as the little Frenchman. He is a contemporary of John Kinsey. Yeah, who's and, got an, a leg injury. Excuse me, in 1806 or so, he breaks a femur. Yeah, and we don't know entirely whether Laleem was egging Irwin on or whether Laleem was simply passively Gene, interpreting what was going on for Irwin. Gene Laleem knows the lay of the land socially, economically, politically between the French and the British and the Indians, and now the Americans coming in. Irwin's writing, you know, he's writing around. As you alluded to already, Whistler has gotten himself sideways, getting his family involved in the sutlering business. But then it's also some of the officers start to write Mm -hmm. behind Whistler's back. Because Kinsey's also accused of bringing in British goods in defiance of the anti-importation tariff. Right, 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 right. So Matthew Irwin, Patrick, is up to his old tricks here, writing letters. Yes, he's complaints. He's been writing to the Secretary of War. He actually has befriended the Lieutenant Seth Thompson, who is underneath John Whistler, who's the captain at Fort Dearborn. And they are not appreciative of some of the activities going on at the fort. And so Thompson writes up charges against Captain Whistler, Surgeon's Mate Cooper, and Lieutenant Hamilton. And I believe he sends them to Colonel Kingsbury. Yes. And is expecting a response. But in the meantime, Matthew Irwin, not willing to leave well enough alone, sends those charges on using his influence to the Secretary of War, William Eustace. So there's some correspondence eventually where Kingsbury lets the officers know, Whistler know, that there are charges against them from Thompson, which is the right thing to do as a colonel. Now, Thompson shouldn't be bringing any charges against anybody of a higher rank. Well, he's a lieutenant. Which is sort of the explanation that Kingsbury tells Captain Whistler, but because he also knows that Matthew Irwin has sent these on to Secretary of War Eustace, his hands are tied, and he has to wait to see what Eustace says and does with the charges. So there's maybe almost six months of this tension in the fort. And here's a copy of the charges to Colonel Jacob Kingsbury commanding the District of the Lakes, Detroit, and this is undated. Now, what's interesting is there are six charges Charge number one, false muster. Charge number two, neglect of duty. Charge number three, conduct unbecoming an officer and gentleman. Charge number four, assumption and abuse of power. Charge number five, signing and sealing up muster rolls the day before muster on the 27th of July, 1810. And charge number six, breach of a general order. Now, let's dive into the the ones that are the most interesting. <laughs> I love some of the language on this too, Chris. Yes. So charge number two, neglect of duty. Specifically, leaving the garrison whilst commanding officer and going on board a vessel, then tying an anchor in the lake about one mile from the garrison and there remaining till next morning about the 10th of July, 1808. Patrick, this is what I see in the summer at Oak Street Beach. 
Right. Right. Yeah. yeah this is that is, or the, the playpen, as we call it in the boating world. Yeah. It's a good place to go swimming and have some drinks, and things can get pretty rowdy out there. Yeah. I mean, because this is funny. And then related leads to charge number three, Patrick, which is conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. Specifically, returning from on board the vessel next morning, so far disguised by liquor as to render himself ridiculous to his officers and soldiers, i.e. he was drunk. They could have just said that, but... Right. Why use one word when you can use 12? Right. (laughs) Well, that was... There was their way then. There was a class divide. And charge number four, quote, placing his officers on an equal footing with the common soldiers with respect to trading and visiting and garrison orders. This is... Oh, my God. You're treating the enlisted man... Like an officer? Okay, he's your boss. He's your commander. Right. But it sounds like he treats people with respect and people like him. And maybe Matthew Irwin is a bit jealous of that because he's kind of removed and he sets himself apart and he doesn't have the friendships and he's very lonely in a job that he doesn't really know how to do and he's trying to figure out and only has the help of Jean Lalene. Kingsbury was actually quite supportive in the couple letters that I read to Whistler. He's making his job easier. Kingsbury doesn't have to worry about Whistler because he knows his reputation, right? And one of the disturbing things about, I mean, we joke about these uh, charges, but as you said, it brought a lot of anxiety to the fort. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it set into motion a chain of events that would have disastrous consequences for those involved. Absolutely. And in fact, court martials were happening all the time. And so they would bring people up on charges and they would sit and have a court at different forts and they would convene and and you would get 50 lashes. You would get uh, corporal punishment. That was a regular occurrence. So it was not unusual for officers as well to be brought up on charges that would lead to a convening of a court's martial. Both Cooper and Hamilton doesn't want to have his reputation tarnished with a court's martial. Cooper, the the surgeon's mate has also written to the Secretary of War, or at least to Kingsbury, and asked what's going to happen, because Cooper is fearful. So he's already offering to resign his post. I didn't see too much as far as letters from Hamilton, but interestingly, Hamilton is married to Eleanor Kinsey's daughter. Okay. So this is John Kinsey's second wife, Eleanor, who brings a daughter with her to Chicago, she marries Lieutenant Hamilton. Kingsbury's trying to keep the peace and keep the fort going all right and not have the officers too worried, but there's nothing he can do until Eustace makes a decision, and Eustace delays, and Eustace is not known as a really good Secretary of War uh, leading up into the War of 1812. When this gets kicked upstairs, and then the army has to do something. They don't want to lose Whistler. I mean, they know mm-hmm. that Whistler's a talented commander, and so they just... He's very resourceful. I, yeah, I, all I mean, the way he's around. worked all this stuff out, done a great job, That's really. exactly right. I mean, that's my... I, that, I really yeah. think that that's the case. So they just move everybody around. Yeah. They just shift. The person that was at Detroit comes to Fort Wayne. The guy at Fort Wayne, Nathan Heald, comes to Chicago, and they send Whistler to Detroit. Yeah, and at that point, Colonel Jacob Kingsbury is there to oversee the whole Great Lakes District, and those forts all report to him. Right. Yeah. You got it. Well, trying to. I'm trying, no, I'm trying to piece it all together. So basically, you got this... Busybody, Irwin, writing these gossipy, edgy letters. This leads to a reshuffling of the Great Lakes postings. All the commands. All the commands. Yep. A guy like Whistler knew how to command people. So now you put somebody in their heeled who maybe isn't of that caliber, and now the ball starts to roll towards Fort Dearborn massacre. What I'm saying is, what if these letters didn't exist and Whistler stated his post? It's, it's very interesting, Patrick. Well, 
we'll have to see what happens next. Yes. So episode 10, we'll jump into uh, Captain Nathan Heald's command and see how he fares over the next couple years at Fort Dearborn. Thank you for listening. Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.